the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. some grief here from uh, from Facebook pages manager are we live or not I'll let uh, ground control know let me know that they, they're with us or not for some reason unbeknownst to me we suddenly lost some signal and it is two o'clock central time okay ground control is here so that's good we'll assume we are connected and live and we're going to proceed and assume that the connection is not going to drop like it did last week, for reasons unknown. Uh, and again, we have a Book of the Month Club coming up. Uh, if you haven't yet signed up for that, we're going to be discussing uh, the nature of the American system. Uh, Chris Zimmerman and Andrea Schwartz will be handling that. So by all means, dig in and uh, sign up for that. If you haven't, it's going to be a fascinating discussion. Good, we're getting, we have four folks, so the, uh, group is getting uh, larger, and as soon as I get word from Ground Control that we are attached to the Calcedon website, we'll proceed with the questions. Uh, you can watch these Q&As. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, where's the registration for the um, Book of the Month Club right there? So if you click there, you can then get your um, ability to attend. And if you don't have the book, you can still acquire a copy at the Calcedon store. Uh, Ground Control has provided us with the, the link to acquire it. Uh, obviously there was one other thing I was going to mention, uh, and obviously did not. So, But uh, yeah, just send your questions into ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. And we're good to go. So here was the very first question, which is quite an interesting one, uh, because it is um, very, very general. What does light have in common with darkness? So this could be a trick question. I could say uh, Isaiah 45 verse 7 says that uh, God created the light, God created the, the darkness. He created the good and he created evil, physical evil there, and that's not moral evil. Uh, so in essence, they have a common uh, origin. However, when we're talking about moral darkness, it's a different story. And the, they have different destinies as well. The uh, opening of John's Gospel, we read that the light was shining in the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it, couldn't control it or hide it, uh, couldn't overcome the light. And moreover, in 1 John 2.8, we read that the darkness is passing away the King James has that wrong. It reads in the King James, the darkness is past. Well, the Greek word there is paragatai, middle voice, passive, imperfect, and that means an actual process of passing away. And the true light is shining already, as the verse closes out. So it's a promise that the darkness that we see, uh, moral darkness, spiritual darkness, is an actual process of passing away, and the true light is going to continue to grow until it... Uh, enlarges into the fullness of day. Hence Jesus is called the uh, bright and morning star, the harbinger of the sunrise, if you will. So darkness, so far as moral and spiritual darkness is concerned, is on the way out. And uh, Lord Jesus, uh, and the Father who dwells in unapproachable light, um, his uh, word and his counsel and the light will prevail. The Great Commission will be kept and fulfilled. So. Now, usually when we talk about the light and darkness, we're talking about the kind of fellowship, what kind of communion does light have with darkness, quoting from 2 Corinthians 6. So there we have the notion of unequal yoking between unbelievers and believers. However, you certainly have something in common with an unbeliever. You're both made in the image of God. And therefore, uh, following, say, Dr. Van Til's approach, we have an appeal to them, and also we can work together with them. There was a lot of pagan uh, material and workmanship involved in the construction of the temple. Those from afar off, referring to um, distant heathens, were in fact constructing in God's temple. And one day, uh, they will do so consciously and willingly and faithfully as opposed to for the money. So a lot of things are going to happen that are going to transform the world that we have. What we have to recognize is that the situation we face out there is not normative. That is, that's not normal. Sin introduced something very abnormal into the world. It introduced uh, vanity, 
the whole creation was subjected to futility uh, for man's sake, according to Romans 8, 19 to 23, and yet it's the mission of God to overthrow that and change that. It's not to forever be in bondage to futility, but rather would be liberated by the continual expanse of the gospel and the law of God. Uh, Rushdie does a great job of expositing this in his commentary on Romans, which I highly recommend if you don't have a copy. Galatians and Romans commentary by Rushdie, worth pulling that up and reading what he has to say on Romans 8, 19 to 23. We've actually posted that as a separate article, founder's column article, in Faith for All Life, so it's probably also available, hi Diane, also available on uh, our, our um, website. Sean, welcome, good to have you here. So here's the next question that's similar to it. Clarify what it means to be in the world but not of it. Normally when we talk about this, uh, there's a connection here made in 1 Corinthians 5. And he says, I wrote unto you, as verse 9, uh, in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then ye must needs go out of the world. So obviously there's a limitation on the uh, how isolated you can be, how much of a, uh, uh, a withdrawal, withdrawal you can have, especially since you're being sent into the world to help transform it. You're the salt, you're the light of the earth, and you're supposed to be the salt of the earth, and therefore the mission is to be leavened and to penetrate the world. In the process of penetrating the world, we are not to be transformed by the world, but we are to be part of the God's mechanism by which the world is transformed by witness and testimony and obedience to God's law. And all these things have an evangelical effect, evangelistic effect, and they all uh, imprint upon the creation uh, God's claims upon them. Therefore, we are pressing the crown rights of Christ the King. And in so doing, uh, the world is not supposed to shape us. We're going to be part of the process by which the world is shaped uh, in God's power and God's grace. Again, the Holy Spirit moving inexorably to do this. Now, it's a glacial process in terms of uh, how the rate of speed, and some folks, are, they like to see instant revolutionary change as opposed to the kind of transformations that leaven works, as leaven works through the whole lump of dough. But ultimately, the entire lump of dough will be leavened. The world will be leavened and transformed. And so at that point, uh, you don't have to worry about not being in the world or of the world because the world has been made like Christ-like. It has been converted to Christ. Uh, God has taken away the sin of the world. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This process of removing sin from the world will continue until it meets its goal, which is that God has transformed every individual. The gospel has gone out. God has poured out his spirit upon all flesh. We can go from one representation to another, from one end of the Bible to the other, all nations being blessed in Christ. And that will therefore arise at the end. In the meantime, it's very tempting for us uh, when we say, what's well, our plan for evangelism? Uh, if we did this, we put this kind of website up, or we had this kind of appeal, and all of a sudden we're using worldly mechanisms, worldly tactics and techniques. And now the world is informing our Christian witness, and that's not the ideal at all. When we are uh, in the world, it means we're there as a base camp for the kingdom of God to expand and reclaim it. That's the mission. It is not to be absorbed into the world itself and be a part of it. Uh, it's like uh, a joke a comedian said about uh, tonsils and the, doc and the uh, doctor is telling the kid, trying to explain why he needs to have his tonsils out. He says, well, your tonsils are in the back of your throat to defend you, but in this case, your tonsils have lost the war. In fact, they've gone so far as to join the other side. And so, too, we must be careful not, when we're supposed to be defending the Word of God and propagating it and aggressively being that two-edged sword of the Word so that we are guiltless of the blood of all men because we don't fail to proclaim unto them the whole counsel of God. We don't want to turn tail on our own Savior and betray him and his cause by our choice of tactics uh, or by making strategies that are ultimately humanistic. How many times I've been in church meetings where everyone is talking about, or the elders in fact, the leadership, uh, all these tactics for presenting the gospel, all of them not yanked from scripture, but rather uh, psychological studies and things like this, this and marketing schemes and uh, and that's actually going to come into play in one of the other questions, as it turns out. So, yes, when we're in the world, it's for a purpose that we're in the world. Obviously, to raise our families in the Lord and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and also to present the gospel and to obey the, the commandments, uh, and then also to be a witness. And then God provides the fruit. He 
He is the engine by which the world is converted, but our faithfulness must be there. Otherwise, God will bypass us for a generation that will be faithful. God has no problem letting someone's bones bleach in the desert and wander for 40 years if they refuse to uh, enter the promised land. So true, that was his point. As they were entering the promised land, he says, I want you to go into the Canaan, but not become a Canaanite, you know, to transform it into the God's kingdom on earth. These 12 tribes would then take that promised land and uh, turn it into the representational, the, the base camp for God's kingdom to all nations. And uh, instead, they were being influenced continually by the Canaanitish customs, uh, as he warned them would it be the case. So much so that they even started giving uh, other things credit for the uh, wealth that they had in the land that had such tremendous resources, land flowing, land flowing with milk and honey, and uh, or in the mountains for them to dig out with their fingers and all this stuff. But what did they do? They became Canaanitish in their minds and hearts. The mission was to change uh, the world, not to be changed by the world. Um, Sean, I will get roll back to your questions after we finish all these other um, questions. In fact, one of them deals similarly with your the point that you seem to be raising. So uh, I'll come back around. You'll be the first one up uh, of live questions, but we have quite a few questions still to go through. One, two, three, four, five, six, six more to go. Um, so, but we got two, got two down, six to go. <laughs> Keep them coming. They're just like um, shots at a um, shooting festival here. Okay, the next question came from Joe Smith. It's kind of an interesting one, and it's one that... Uh, commentators have dealt with uh, for quite a while. but So therefore it's a worthy question by, by all means. In the Ten Commandments and in God's revelation of himself to Moses in the cleft of the rock, he says he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. How is this compatible with Ezekiel 18? The one whose sin shall die and not his father or son. Is there merit to the break the chain reading of this where children repent of the sins of the fathers and stop the destructive patterns of sin in the family culture? If so, why mention specifically the third and fourth generation, and how does this pair with the mercy to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments? What is the mercy if they are obeying his commandments? Or if the descendants are wicked, what is the mercy they receive related to their ancestors' obedience? That's from Joe Smith. So, uh, of course, if you're going to deal with the book of Ezekiel, which we're going to need to uh, stay in, you want to grab one primary resource, and that's Patrick Fairbairn's commentary. If you don't have a copy of Patrick Fairbairn's uh, Prophecies of Ezekiel, you're going to want to get a copy for your library. It's the one to get. There's plenty of others out there. Uh, do not get Eichrod, because Eichrod doesn't believe that, uh, and uh, he, he would be a very liberal cons uh, commentator, not the conservative one who actually holds to the Word of God being uh, sacred and, and uh, the true Word of God. But Fairbairn has no such debilitating problems. He faces the st stuff correctly. So let's deal with this here. The text that uh, Joe is referring to, uh, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to fourth generation. So obviously we have a contrast between thousands of generations versus uh, third and fourth generation. And then the contrast, the apparent contrast here, thank you for that, uh, is in uh, Ezekiel 18, 1 to 4. The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What mean ye, and ye is in plural, talking about the people of Israel, that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, and that's an oath in God's own name, it's a self-maledictory oath. As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. So we have a little background information here. These ideas are in Scripture simultaneously. Are they in conflict? There's two uh, approaches to this. They're in conflict, and uh, there's no resolution to the conflict. They, they're, they're directly contradictory. That'd be one possibility. Uh, we'll see that it's not true, but nonetheless, a lot of folks have held that. Second choice, it's been true up until God changed his mind in Ezekiel 18. That's another choice. But a third choice is that the two things are, actually are compatible and remain compatible, and in fact are enforced by Ezekiel 18 himself and elsewhere in Scripture as simultaneously true. And that actually is the position we're going to take. Now, first we have to establish that, in fact, the, uh, the Word of God is, does hold that there is a certain sense in which 
the children do suffer uh, as the fathers do. In Jeremiah 15, 4, uh, Manasseh was from a previous generation. And notice this, what God says, And I will cause them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what, with that which he did in Jerusalem. So now the subsequent generations are going to suffer for Manasseh's deeds. Lamentations 5.7, similar concept is laid out. It sounds like the proverb that uh, was being circulated in Israel in Ezekiel's hearing, and God was upset with it. Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. Now, Jeremiah had a uh, more mm, theologically astute approach to this, as we'll find out uh, momentarily. And, of course, Christ, as Farron Baron points out, says something very similar. He says, the blood of uh, righteous Abel to... Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who was slain between the holy, you know, the, the altar and the high place, the holy place, says, shall all fall upon this generation. So there's a sense in which generational guilt was going to be placed on them. But we'll notice, of course, that it was on them because they trumped everybody else in terms of the sin that they committed. They killed their own Messiah. Uh, and we'll see that this is actually coming into play <coughs> in these passages. Now here's where it gets very interesting. When I say these two concepts are compatible in Scripture, they actually occupy two adjacent verses in Jeremiah 32. The one verse teaches one idea, and then another verse teaches the, the second idea. So if they're not compatible, it's odd that Jeremiah would put them together and out of God's own mouth like this. This is uh, 32 verses 18 and 19. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. So there it looks like children are going to get it for what their fathers did. But then, the very next verse, great in counsel and mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Now here again is individual responsibility asserted, just like in Ezekiel 18. So how is it that these two things can coexist? Because the sense in which these things are applying is different. And so here we have this interesting passage in Ezekiel 18 again, which is the central passage to consider. Yet ye say, and this is God putting words or saying what the, uh, the Jews were saying, Why? Doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? And God corrects, When the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. No. God says he's not going to bear the iniquities of his father. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wickedness shall be upon him. So the essence is, uh, and we'll find out as we go to the end of the proverb, God says actually this, uh, this proverb shall be no more said. Why? Because there'll be no more occasion of it. Because what's going to happen, and Calvin points this out too, is God's going to lift the hood on them and expose the fact that they're actually guilty. That they say, we're innocent victims of our father's sins. But in actual felt fact, the, um, the wrath, the, the weight of the, and the burden of the punishment fall on them because the guilt is with them. They commit the same sins. They are st actually sinners too, and they are guilty. They're, so their pretense is, we're innocent people. And God is such a, so unfair to have to... So we're victims of this, of this policy of God. And God says, you know, you're a victim of your own conduct. You are following in the footsteps of your fathers. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 23. You are doing exactly what your fathers did. You know, they built the uh, tombs of the prophets, and you're going to go ahead and kill the Messiah. You're following in the exact same footsteps. So the reason that we have uh, this apparent... Uh, visitation of the sins on the next generation is that they're f walking in the same sins. That's why they get the same visitation, the same uh, wrath from God, the same judgment occurs, uh, and God's justice is always fair. So what happens, of course, uh, that sin grows from generation to generation. Why do you suppose from Adam and Eve we end up to a point where, except for Noah, everyone is, everyone's thoughts are evil continually, they're requiring a flood to, to reset everything? So evil spreads very, very quickly and very easily. The propensity to be our own gods and be autonomous and rebel against the uh, yoke of God, even though it's easy and light, uh, is endemic to mankind. And so we resent, resent man, God and we uh, uphold man and uh, we follow our Father's footsteps. And we figure, figure that's the way to go and therefore we suffer justly in all these cases. Uh, in Ezekiel 18.25, and this verse is almost repeated almost verbatim at verse 29, 
God says, Yet ye say, The way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? Here God asserts that he is fair and just. Equity is in his footsteps, and his justice is his throne, as we uh, hear the psalmist proclaim, and, and from one end of scripture to the other. So how is it that they're saying that God's not equal? Because they're saying, well, uh, we're innocent, but uh, we're suffering. And God's saying, no, 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 no. You're suffering because you're not innocent. You're guilty. And I am equal. I exhibit equity. And the proof that you're unequal is this, that you, being guilty, want judgment to pass over you and not come. You want to reverse things because, of course, if it's wrong for the innocent to suffer, it's equally wrong for the guilty not to be judged. They're two sides of the same moral coin. So God is, on, is obligated, because of his promise back then in Exodus 34, 7, in Deuteronomy 5, to go ahead and punish the wicked. And since they're, they're protesting and saying we shouldn't be judged, why are we in a state of judgment? God says, your way is unequal. You expect to be guilty and go free. You think that you can be screened for, from uh, uh, judgment by past good conduct, for example. Now, that's interesting, that thing that was brought up by Ezekiel 18 in this passage is worth talking about just by itself. Lots of times we'll say, well, look at all the good that so-and-so has done. Look at all the good that so-and-so has done. But you know something? That doesn't actually work with, uh, with Scripture because the, uh, as Fahrenheit points out, uh, it's actually quoted in Ezekiel 18. Make sure I've got the right text here. Let's see, here it is. Oh, here it is. Nothing of all his righteousness that he hath done shall be remembered. In his trespass that he has trespassed, and in his sin he has sinned, in them shall he die. So that's interesting. If you have a guy who's like a great Christian missionary or who knows what, uh, theologian, pastor, and we talk about all his good stuff, and according to Ezekiel 18, once he apostatizes, it says, all the good things he did shall not be mentioned, is the way it works in the King James, or shall not be remembered, which is how Fernbaron and the Young's Literal uh, Bible translates it. Uh, you shouldn't bring that on the table as a factor. Their current conduct wipes out the past good. In the same token, interestingly enough, repentance can wipe out at least the judgment for the bad to an extent, and certainly if, uh, uh, eternal uh, consequences can be had. Right, and exactly too. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and this is laid out elsewhere in Ezekiel 18. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, he, that's a good point. So, here's the interesting thing, and it's Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. Here's how it lays out. <clears throat> Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, false gods. For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Notice that? These are the generations that hate God. The third and fourth generations of those that hate me. So the hatred of God passes into the next generations. And they also hate God and then worship idols. And showing mercy to thousands of them that love me. Thousands of generations that love me. So the difference is in between the generations of hatred and generations of love. Those that hate God. And so the generational uh, effect. Now, this means, of course, when Joseph Smith uh, speaks about uh, breaking the chain, yes, absolutely, because Ezekiel 18 holds out the hope for breaking the chain. Uh, it indicates that you do not need to go to the third and fourth generation of uh, uh, this process. But it also shows how much greater God's love is, that where his love is present, the uh, consequence of that extends to thousands of generations, and where his hatred is, it goes only to three or four. So that's why judgment is a strange work of the Lord God. Is a fascinating verse in Isaiah 7.20 to the effect that uh, to judge the nation of Israel, he hires a razor when a, a pagan nation to come and cut Israel short because he doesn't have his own razor to do it. So he has to hire someone else to do it. Uh, God does not normally put that implement in his uh, work. He would rather see people turn from their sins and repent. By the way, that exact same thought occurs in De Deuteronomy 5, verse 9 and 10. So it's twice in Scripture that we have this notion that the third and fourth generations that are going to bear that iniquity are the generations that hate God. So here's kind of the answer to the question. 
And basically, as Calvin pointed out, what God's going to do in Ezekiel 18 is expose the people's lie that they're innocent. And therefore, the proverb drops out as a whole bunch of nonsense, as posturing, uh, moral posturing, that they're victims when in fact they're victims of their own sin. And they should do as the cross went on the cross next to Christ said, we're suffering rightfully for what the deeds we've done. Israel wants to hide and cover that up. And uh, they want to screen that and say it's our father's sins by what we're penalty, but we're victims of someone else's sin. And God says, no, you're victims of your own sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now, this brings up a whole other area because when I speak on the topic of boycotts, I always bring Ezekiel 18 in because lots of people think that there's a transmission of guilt. If I buy a product from Company X and Company X does some evil heathen thing or supports this evil cause or what have you, I have now supported this company by purchasing this. But the scripture says, a soul that sinneth transgresses God's law, it shall die. So uh, the mere fact that I bought something from the company does not entail sin on my part. There is no transmission of sin from one or the other. And this is proved in the Nehemiah 13, where we have the people from Tyre coming at the walls of Jerusalem to buy and sell with Israel, to sell things. Merchants is what they are. And uh, it's fine with Nehemiah so long as they don't buy and sell on the Sabbath. When they show up on the Sabbath, uh, he warns them to come back anyway. And he says, if you show up here on the Sabbath one more time, I'll lay hands on you. So it was, um, Nehemiah was unwilling to have the nation, which was uh, suffered for 70 years because of a Sabbath violation, land Sabbath violation, to now break, go back to breaking Sabbaths again as soon as they got back into the land. He says, I'm not going to allow that on my watch. But notice what's admissible. You can buy and sell with the heathens all you want, even though they're going to take the money and do evil things with it. Because there's no transmission of guilt. The soul that's sin it, it shall die. They will be responsible for what they do with the capital and resources they give. In fact, the thing, the capital that the wicked have will be laid up for the righteous anyway. So it is not true that you are capitalizing evil in this way. Uh, but that often comes into play when people assume, you know, you are supporting this company by having an economic transaction with them. Well, then Israel was supporting, of course, uh, Canaanites. And Nehemiah was blind and he got them back on track. And he obviously missed it, except that, of course, he proclaims this before God as evidence of his righteousness. And, in fact, God rubber stamps it because it is, in fact, correct. Nehemiah understood what was at stake. We can, in fact, like the Proverbs 31 woman, she gets materials from afar. Well, that can be pretty dangerous. How do you know what, or, uh, what those guys, those heathens and pagans and idolaters are doing with that money? Who probably put their children through the fire to Molech and who knows what. So, that's all to be uh, considered. So... All right, let's go to the next question. I think we've beaten that into the ground enough. And that's not the page. <laughs> Normally I have only one sheet to worry about. Okay, this is good because this follows along. If we work on the premise that justice should be in line with God's law rather than special interests, is it wrong to bring discrimination claims against an employer, etc.? So uh, it depends what the uh, discrimination claim is all about. Uh, every person is supposed to be equal before the law of God. And so, therefore, only the, the uh, relationships that are set forth in the law of God have the moral imperative and requirements, the binding of the conscience that would entail. Now, that's a little far cry from what civil government may do. So if you're saying, what would we need to do to align civil government with Scripture? That's a big project because, of course, we have to scale everything back to the laws of God and then establish general equity, and we're not competent at it. We don't have the character to do that. The Puritans had much vaster character than we had, and their attempt was incomplete. We can look at the holes in it and see what they missed, but that doesn't mean that we're yet ready to resume that project, except that we're required to. So that means that we need to get all our ducks in order. We need to do our legwork. We need to lay the foundations in an appreciation of the law of God and how to extend it. But if you expect rapid progress, you're not going to get there. So the, the issue here is... Uh, the special interest question comes into play because it goes respect to persons is, is playing a part. And the law of God doesn't have respect to persons in it. It's, we're not supposed to be respecters of persons. Uh, anything that's inherently unjust at that point because everyone is a created in God's image to start with. And that puts us all on the same plane to begin with under God's law. Before the law of God, before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, and this should also apply within the civil realm. 
So to the extent that civil law starts to bring a respected persons in and codify it, it is a departure from God's law and therefore ends up in what? Mischief. That's the word used King James translators in Psalm 94.20, the wicked frame mischief using law. So we have a lot of things to scale back and to replace with biblical categories and imperatives. And I would include things on this order of what constitutes discrimination, what is legitimate discrimination, what is illegitimate discrimination, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All that to say, uh, we don't yet have the tools in hand. Now, some libertarians might zoom out and say this is how things should fly. But oftentimes, those don't necessarily have a, a biblical backing. Uh, they start with a more autonomous platform at the beginning. Usually, it's the um, non-aggression principle in the work, everything from one principle, which is a very Greek way to do it. And it, uh, to the extent that the non-aggression principle has value in it, uh, some of the developments are, are useful. But because it's incomplete and doesn't give the whole picture, uh, it then also leads into some rabbit holes that aren't helpful. And consequently, will not give us uh, wisdom in terms of setting forth law and dealing with employment law, such as it should be. Uh, there certainly was a claim that the in the parable that Christ gave about people coming into the, the uh, fields to work at different times a day, all being given paid the same amount regardless of how long they were working, that the, uh, there was discrimination there against the people who came first. And yet the um, employer says, I've not harmed anybody, I've not defrauded a single person. Everyone got exactly what they contracted for. So in a sense, he has some right to do with what he has. You can always write a different contract. But uh, that's the way it works. There would not have been an issue had they worked hard enough not to have to bring more people in at the end and at a more favorable hourly rate to get that thing done before, say, the rains came to ruin the crop. So a lot of interesting issues there to, to bring up. My main point is to get where we want to go, we need to lay the groundwork. And that process of laying the groundwork is still early, the church, because it entered an antinomian era when dispensationalism arose in the early 1800s, has failed to do the legwork, has failed to extend the Puritan work where it was valid, has failed to, uh, has been pretty good about attacking everything the Puritans they didn't like, but that's not the same thing as testing against scripture and saying, but what was the right path? If the Puritans went uh, in a different direction than scripture allowed, and we would say this is a failure on their part to be consistent. But how consistent is the modern Christian compared to the Puritan? Actually, it would tend to be worse off. So even Rush Tooney, when he compared himself to the Puritan, said he was lazy compared to them, and he worked nonstop. But he says, you know, they, the Puritans, put to shame modern Christians. And so until we had the kind of character to, to labor in the world and in the word, the way the Puritans did, uh, we were fooling ourselves to think that there can be quick fixes. All we had to do is this, boop, 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 and it's all done. That's not going to happen. This is the way of the Donatist who thinks that we can just purify everything in one fell swoop and boom, we're gone, we're done. And yet none of this, uh, there's no transformation of character, growth in character, uh, growth in our wisdom and in our righteousness and our knowledge of the things of God and its proper application. And, and until those things come into play, uh, men were not going to truly be the tree planted by rivers of water that give their fruit in a season and fruit never withers. We have to be so deeply planted into the law of God that that doesn't happen. We talk a lot about it, we're reading the right books, but we need to inculcate this into our children and children's children. This is a generational project, right? So if wicked can, wickedness can pass its agenda next to the next generation, we need to be doubly urgent and committed to passing that to the subsequent generation. Next question, what do you think about setting up scholarships for interested and needy students to attend a Christian school? Is this something churches should do or families? As a matter of fact, it's a very, very good use of the, um, the Levitical tithe, in my view, in which 90% of it, of the social tithe, the Levitical tithe, was to go to Levites for education. And the Christian schools that I knew uh, uh, back in California actually had scholarships available that were funded by associated churches uh, to make sure that a, a family that could not afford the Christian schooling was not deprived of it for economic reasons. So what a tremendous Christian outreach from to brother and brother to assist someone in this regard, uh, especially if homeschooling is not an option for whatever reason. So all these are valuable things, and I, I think that it can be done. Uh, and it should be done both at the family level and at the church level. I, I like to see that done at both levels, but I don't want to restrict it to either or. Uh, I know families that do, in fact, set up scholarships for other families because then this is it creates community between the families. 
when the church does it, it tends to be funneled through the diaconate, which is good so far as it goes, but then it has this institutional flavor, and so you have to overcome that by reintroducing the personal component so that it is not seen as merely a program with the church. The church suffers from so much programitis, it's a wonder it still exists, except that people seem to be immune to it or come to expect it versus being confronted with the living God there in the sanctuary. Very different thing. Next question. How do one differentiate between depression and experiencing the consequences of one's own sin? Is it likely to have the pendulum swung, to swing too far in any one direction? I like the second part of this question particularly because what happens is this. Uh, here's two extremes. Someone is actually has a legitimate cl clinical depression and if someone comes at him and says, I'm going to apply some nothetic counseling to you uh, in a very bald, non-nuanced way without doing my data intake and understanding the situation fully. And I'm going to declare that your, um, your, your attitude is sinful and you need to repent and snap out of it. Uh, and of course, this is going to probably compound a clinical depression because now we're adding guilt on top of everything else, uh, compounding guilt uh, for a false cause. So that extreme would be terrible. The other extreme, of course, is where um, s someone is simply deep in their uh, sins and the feeling the effects of it, and we say, you need to go see a doctor for your clinical depression and get some medicines for that. So now we have healing the hurt of our people lightly, as Jeremiah twice calls it. We are not resolving the problem, we're covering up uh, with a false diagnosis. So what you need to do is get the right diagnosis. And of course, there's no reason why the two things can't come into play. There's, uh, sins do have a somatic effect on the body. It's just, for example, you might think it's merely a, a metaphor, a simile, when it says, you know, envy is rottenness in the bones. But there's a sense in which the body obviously does have an issue with, uh, with the, the sin within its midst because now there's a war in the members, right? Each atom of our being wants to glorify God, and instead the, the soul is not permitting that to happen. It's defying God. So the, the, that is an interesting element, uh, and that war in the members creates issues. So it's a fundamental rot of the, of the person from the bones all the way out. In other words, it's fundamental. The structure of a person, both physically and morally, is corrupted by envy. So all that to say, uh, we want to avoid both extremes, and we want to get the proper diagnosis. What are the clues that it's one or the other? Well, this is where the intake comes in. If a proper counselor, uh, whether it's a pastor or if it's someone in a clinical realm, uh, and, I, and, and you can have a very incompetent pastor as much as you can have a very atheistic uh, clinical counselor, and they both might arrive at wrong solutions. So what do we need is someone who's informed, who's able to be the proper shepherd to the herding sheep out there, who's willing to go to the, hun the hundred sheep that's lost in this kind of uh, issue that's clouding their mind and preventing them from functioning. Uh, and if it is sin, then we deal with it properly. And if it is something else, then we deal with that appropriately with the tool sets. But to use a hammer um, and assume everything's a nail uh, is not appropriate. So do your research first. That, I think, was one of the alleged fall, uh, shortfalls of early nathetic counseling was, there's our hammer that Jay Adams gave us, everything looks like a nail. Uh, and even he did not uh, propose such a non-nuanced, ham-fisted approach to things because the intake was supposed to resolve other things. Doesn't mean that everything he said was perfect, but it does mean that uh, uh, taking that as merely a uh, one, two, three manual, uh, put tab A in, in slot B, and you have uh, everything fixed in a very shallow way, people are complicated creatures, you know, and, uh, and they are, in fact, a creature of God, and we have to take this into effect when we counsel. So let us not be either healing the wound of our people lightly, nor countenancing them in their sins, um, uh, nor applying the wrong salve that hurts them. So, but sometimes it might be very hard to, to tell uh, first uh, off the bat which of these two is the case, or whether it's a mixture of the two. So apply the right solution to the right problem. So analysis, learn what the problem is. Become part of the life of the person who's suffering from this. Come alongside, bear their burdens, find out. How can you help? If it's to um, expose the sin and help them work their way through that, do that. Because um, there's a brother in a time of trouble, and that could be you. Uh, and if it's something else, if it's something clinical, uh, then we have to then say another solution might be called for. And even that, we have to take care of those things. Anytime we're talking about uh, psychoactive substances, there's a whole world of hurt that can come from that. Uh, they don't solve it. They can sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. 
on the pharmaceutical side. And you certainly are familiar with what I've had to write about this in terms of trying to resolve addiction issues. And lots of times people are addicted to these drugs because they're trying to cover up the effects of it, something depressing. And what happens when they become sober again is that the problems that led them to the drug now are exposed and they see their life's what it really is and you have, you have to be alongside them at that time to pull them out of that process, to pull them out of the, the, the mire that they've inflicted on themselves. Okay, uh, well, two more questions. Today I saw a post on Facebook from a Christian woman uh, inviting other Christians to join her at the Pride Parade to, quote, give hugs, unquote, to those in attendance. Please comment on the absurdity of this kind of evangelism, evangelism is in quotes. Well, of course, the issue is that we are not, um, I don't, I'm not sure this is, even constitutes evangelism in the first place. Um, the intent is to try to break down a, a barrier with the perception that Christians are harsh and unloving. But the, the trouble is that this hug is not going to alter the fundamental issue of being re in rebellion against God's law. Uh, and that autonomy marks those in the pride parade and that they are, of course, doing so with a high hand. So uh, good intentions notwithstanding, it is a non-starter. Uh, it does not press the crown rights of Jesus. It therefore is um, unlikely to resolve any problems. Now that she's in, uh, inducing others to join her, and this means that she has a plan and a mission to convert the people at the Pride Parade. Dr. Rush Dooney deals with just such a uh, situation, I believe it's in The Cure of Souls, where a woman was convinced that she uh, could uh, get all these public schools to um, toward the line and become biblical if she would just go out there and, and talk to them. I have the power to talk to them and convince them. And so we have this spiritual pride that's aggregated and accumulated that my agenda, my plan will work when everyone else has failed. And so the spiritual pride comes in and colors everything. And uh, people are convinced, self-deluded really, that uh, their program will solve what other people's approaches have failed to solve. At least that's what they think. So uh, it's important to have an outreach here, but the, out the outreach is constitutes nothing other than a, a warm hug. Uh, it's going to fall short of what's necessary, which is to bring the gospel in and the healing of the word of God. The entering in of your word bringeth light, the psalmist said. So the hug falls far short of bringing any light into a dark situation. Therefore, I think it, 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 it's not the program for me, and it's, I think it's going, to not, it's going to fall short for any expectations that are claimed for it, other than uh, I can't even imagine what value would come from it. Because the, the, the other side certainly sees an antipathy uh, and an antinomy between us and them. Uh, and rightly so. The Word of God doesn't make, in fact, make a division between these kind, kind of conduct. And uh, if you're faithful to the Word of God, that kind of comes out. There's no way it can be hidden or soft-pedaled, and certainly doesn't do the, uh, the other side any favors to soft-pedal it. You owe it to them to tell them the truth of what God's Word says about controversial topics like this. Okay, these last questions aren't so fun to answer. Hi, Martin, will you please comment on the recent fracturing of the Christian Reconstructionist movement, particularly over the topics of kinism and patriarchy? Uh, why have these things happened so relatively suddenly in 2018? And there's a follow-up question to that. So let's talk about the suddenness. When we talk about suddenness, it means that we expect to have a quick, fast, rapid purge uh, without having the character to see it through. And this, I think, is, is troubling. It assumes that we can put capstones in place without foundations and walls and buttresses and that's everything necessary to get the capstone. It's direct moving to the capstone uh, and without doing the necessary work to get there. And so when we make such an issue a suddenly a divisive thing as opposed to saying, you know, we have a lot of work to do in this and there's also a lot of harm that's being done because of some views on this. Let's work together on this project rather both sides vilify the other and there's mutual demonization and uh, the movement is split. Now as far as the um, these two issues, kinism and patriarchy, there's a uh, Dr. Gary North had an interesting comment, it was in a different context but it's, it kind of applies here. He says there comes a time when we will find that we have uh, shared presuppositions with another group, another contingent of Christians. And oftentimes this creates the false sense of a ligament or an attachment there. 
you do have that shared set of presuppositions, but then the fringe opinion comes in to say to play, in his view, is what he was talking about was fringe opinions being attached because of shared presuppositions. He was concerned with certain things related to creationism and then other people glomming on to creationism, some idiosyncrasies as he saw them, and he uh, uh, opposed them and said, you know, uh, just because I'm uh, creationism, I want to defend that doesn't mean I need to be friends with the flat earther, but a flat earther also holds to creationism, except he's got a different notion of uh, geometry and, and other factors, astronomical factors. So uh, the same token, uh, and when there's shared presuppositions, you have to make a decision. I said, are the shared, shared presuppositions adequate to work in the area where the presuppositions are shared and to then differ in the other areas? In other words, a co-belligerency, something we've been talking about almost from the first, this is our 47th, I believe, 47th or 48th Q&A, and I think every other topic we talk about co-belligerency, working together with people with which we do not have 100% agreement. And uh, the question is, is that a legitimate co-belligerency, co or are we back to the having some kind of oddball fellowship and countenancing evil by working together shoulder to shoulder. My view is that if you're in a co-belligerency with such so important shared um, presuppositional base, common coin there in the middle, that uh, that could be a basis for uh, outreach and working with the other side and trying to apply the Word of God to align these things better. You are more likely to have an opportunity to do that in my view, this is an opinion now, it's not the Word of God necessarily, but in my experience I've seen it, that uh, when you have common cause with someone, they're more likely to, to then listen to you and you say, here's some scriptures that deal with this idiosyncrasy of yours. And if you say it that way, you probably will alienate them before your first sentence is out. But you say, here's things that I see as challenges for your position and that, that, don't, that don't fly. And over time, if you're working together, that has an effect on people and they start to migrate. Uh, one thing we know for an absolute fact is that Zion shall one day see eye to eye. That presupposes that right now we don't see eye to eye. And the question is, what are you going to do with that? To what point do you say, I'm not going to work with this Christian because he holds to position X or the position Y? Or not, I'm not going to consider them a Christian because they hold to position X. You know, they're, they're heretics. Then we have to make a distinction. Well, they got, is it an aberration? Uh, is it a heresy? Is it a damnable heresy? And so we have this grading system, we, and we put the template up and say, well, it looks to me like um, no fellowship with you. Uh, and, uh, and oh, by the way, while I'm at it, I'm going to make sure no one, else, no one else fellowships with you. Aren't you. Or do you agree with me we shouldn't fellowship with him? If not, you're, I'm going to not fellowship with you either. So now everyone has, has got to fight, and everyone's going to have these contingencies, uh, and it's an ugly thing at that point. So the fracturing is, in, is evidence of a, can be evidence of one of two things. Uh, it can be evidence of faithfulness, or it can be, um, or it can be evidence of poor Christian character. In other words, foundational Christian character is not strong enough to make a co-belligerency work. It is more interested in cleaning house. And this is where the Donatists come in. I mentioned them earlier. Donatism held to a view of purity that said, by the way, if the person who uh, performed your marriage apostatizes, then your marriage vows are invalidated, and consequently, you're living in sin. You were not married at all. So you weren't, your marriage was not safe from this charge until the pastor who performed your wedding was safely dead and died in the faith. Because if he'd apostatized and then died, now we've got problems. So the question is, Donatism tried to deal with the question, uh, what do we do with, with uh, folks, Christian leaders, that um, slip and fall and stumble? And, uh, and, do, and what do we do with the consequences of that stumbling? Uh, and so we have to, and so it had to do with the nature of purity and how it should be achieved in Christian fellowship, and that's a point that Rushton needs to draw some attention to, uh, and it's worth looking at what he had to say about the topic of Donatism. We in fact published his one of his articles on it in Faith for All of Life, and mentioned ground control can probably put it up and have us take a look at it. But that tells us a lot what's going on because there the Christians also those who thought that the, like the Donatists had overgone too far, others who thought that the Donatists were right on the money. And so we still have neo-donatism today uh, in this form. And uh, no one is saying that the intentions were wrong. You know, purity is a good thing. What, who wants impurities, right? But we don't honestly have it. And it's, to say that now we are pure is a false statement because now all you've done is maybe take uh, someone else's impurity out, but your impurity remains, whatever it might be. Well, mine's not, not, not so bad. Well, this is kind of like the point of Ezekiel 18 that we talked about at the beginning not so crystal clear, not so clear cut at all. So we're, one day we're going to get all these things resolved. 
uh, and I am I personally have opinions about which direction they're going to resolve. Uh, and one of the questions that was popped up actually re repeats this question about the patriarchy point. Now, as far as patriarchy is concerned, I've weighed in on this in the article Patriarchy versus Feminism that uh, was published by FAFAOL, Faith for the Life, and Ground Control might end up putting uh, the link for that up if they find it. You can see that uh, there are issues with, with uh, both sides. They uh, are e extremes and don't deal with all the biblical evidence in hand. And Rashtuni is a good witness to this because I'm able to quote him, particularly from the Cure of Souls and other texts, to this effect, to show the faultiness of it, to show that both directions um, don't take into account the whole scripture, the whole counsel of God. There's a lot of proof texting and cherry-picking going on, but that's a whole different ballgame. Wow. Okay, last question, which is a follow-up. How should I proceed as a Christian Reconstructionist who resents the partisanship that has come about and who believes his work entails the recruitment of non-Reconstructionist Christians to the best version of the CR movement for the sake of future generations? Well, we kind of had this problem before. In 1983, it, it arose. Do we follow Vallecito or Tyler? Those were your, kind of your options if you're a Reconstructionist. Uh, and some people that wisely, I think, decided I'm not going to choose. I am going to, uh, there's good material, valuable stuff being produced uh, by Dr. North. There's good material being produced by Calcedon. Now, uh, North is throwing uh, imprecations and uh, Russia's way. Russia isn't responding. What do I do with that? Uh, in the meantime, do we read the books? Do we glean from their work, despite the fact that there is a war between these two uh, sectors? Uh, we should not have the, these warring camps, the shibboleth phenomenon. Um, and it creates a, a division that is unnecessary. Uh, I know that people say, well, it's, it's necessary that there should be heresies among you to, to, to test things. Um, but the question is, are we applying that verse properly in context today? And I think that's not, not an open question. I think it can be open to a legitimate challenge. So it, these are all tough questions. But when we say, what's the right version of CR, then we say there are flavors. There are Apollos, and there is Cephas, and there is uh, Paul. And I think that's troublesome. Uh, we should find the best and say there's a mix. There's a lot of differences of opinion between these folks. They are, they are have uh, they're very strong-willed people, and consequently, uh, and God's not bringing pansies and uh, milk toasts and, and uh, buttercups in to become reconstructions. He brings pretty strong-minded folks who are not going to mince words. And when they have a difference, it comes out. Facebook provides a tremendous uh, opportunity to, uh, to vent spleen and, and uh, attack people. And that's regrettable because uh, once people make the attack, it's very, very hard to walk it back. We kind of um, put ourselves into various corners as a result. And if that corner is one where we simply are not, not seeing clear to move forward, then we're not going to move at all, uh, except that we'll have the satisfaction of, I showed them. And that's why I'm saying this is a character issue. We do not have the Christian character that the Puritans had to sustain the kind of arguments that the Puritans had. The Puritans actually were able to deal with argumentation over antinomianism and theonomy quite well. They could take a strong discussion and not break fellowship over it. Uh, they would see the value in what each other was bringing to the table and say, let's work this out. As they said, and we've seen the fail, uh, I'm going to hold to this position as I understand it, or as God may shine further light upon it. But we usually don't talk about God shining a further light upon something, so we don't even open the door to that uh, or assume that it, that uh, understanding could come from someone we disagree with. Someone might bring an understanding of a scripture that's a, a particular one scripture, let's say, uh, and it might be he's a, he's a hyper-preterist, full-preterist, but he might have a view of one text that actually matches up with John Owens. So what do you do? Say, John Owens, we're going to throw him out because uh, he agreed with a preterist in the 20th century, the 21st century, and he said, wrote something almost identical in 1682, uh, was he poisoned by the full preterists? No, we just simply acknowledge that there might be something to say for that position. Uh, but it doesn't mean we buy the whole package. In other words, you have to say there might be something true in that. Uh, Paul was able to pick and choose even from pagan writings and extract something of value, though he wasn't getting his ethical instruction from them. He got his from the law of God, which he delighted in and uh, in the inner man. Okay. I think that should settle it. I don't believe that there is, at the moment, a best version of CR. There are versions of uh, because the best of CR is a mix between all the people that are fighting. Uh, 
And uh, until the fighting stops, it makes it a little bit more difficult to lean all these pieces. There it is, the article. Thank you, Ground Control. Um, and so you should not shun any particular camp, at least where they have something biblical to say. This is where Warfield was very important. He says, some matters are so important that so long as even one thing even remotely plausible to be said on behalf of it, we should hear it out. And so, too, we should not, because you never know that God's word is going to be resolved and properly applied in that case. Uh, so his open-mindedness was not open-mindedness in regard to unorthodox notions, but rather, let's test the scriptures. Everything had to be dealt with Berean and had to be dealt with across the whole board. And so we don't have adequate uh, analysis. I once talked about uh, a um, site that was being uh, critical of kinism, and he discovered that it was much, he had to do a lot deeper digging than he expected to arrive at his answers. So it, it, it proved there was not a slam dunk. Now, he, had, he did a pretty good job after he grappled with it properly, but he had to point out that it took a lot deeper digging to resolve the issues that he had and to show that the, the problems in a decisive way. Um, and that's what we had. So uh, that to say some of these things won't resolve quickly, and the expectation for quick fixes is, a, is an exhibit of shallow Christian character. Deep Christian character is, is in it for the long haul, sees it as a marathon and not a series of little sprints. And consequently, uh, we're able to deal with things that are difficult. You can have your Tobias and your Sandal trying to call you down from the wall. If we keep building and keep getting the best tools for building, then these other things will end up resolving themselves. You know, the, these fires eventually go out, and the truth will also come out in the process by a way cooler minds prevailing, not by the angry... Uh, fusillades being launched across the aisle, and chasm of incomprehension, I call it. Uh, that's not necessary to get there. Okay, winding back to some live questions. Who was the first live question? Here's the registration for the book of the month. Good to go. Okay, let me get the whole question from Sean. He commented on the anti-patriarchalist movement that is spreading rapidly in Reconstruction circles. What does the Bible have to say about patriarchy? Thank you. We have posted my article. What we are seeing here is a swinging of the pendulum again. The pendulum uh, will continue to swing, and each side is going to have to then come at it. And Because what's happening is that different passages of Scripture are being brought to bear in such a way that uh, people with character are going to say, let's anal analyze, let's work it through, let's see if that flies and let's engage once we have all the pieces together. Because this is a something that's kind of uh, we call nascent. It's growing, and it doesn't have all its legs under itself yet. But it's a swing of the pendulum. It's an acknowledgment that certain things don't that, that they can pull from Scripture don't seem to fly in terms of some of the constructs that have prevailed for a while. And so it's opening up that question. Uh, now, does it open up that question in a, uh, a very militant way? They would, they're the way then which it's uh, pr um, packaged and promoted. Um, again, we have a, the, the character issue because we're so confident in this fact that we're going to go live to the world publicly and Facebook and uh, uh, promote certain positions and then reinforce each other as, uh, in those posts. And, uh, what, and I think what has to happen is more of the legwork and more critical response. And I don't mean critical response by savaging them, or, but rather saying, let's go look, you bring these four passages of Scripture up, let's walk through them all and see if they say what you say they mean, and if that's a fair evaluation, a fair application of it, or whether you've stretched it to a breaking point. So those questions have to be answered. They have not been answered. Uh, they await answering. In the meantime, while we wait for someone actually to take this seriously enough to deal with it properly, we're all dealing with it improperly. Okay. Please address the dialectic that occurs in Scripture between the imprecatory songs and the fact that God says he takes no pleasure in the delight of the wicked, nor are we to rejoice in the misfortune of our enemies. Uh, the best source on this is actually in um, Christian Theistic Ethics by Van Til. Van Til actually uh, has a whole section on the imprecatory psalms, uh, and he takes issue, of course, with uh, C.S. Lewis, who thought that they're subscriptural and don't even belong in the Bible because they couldn't possibly mean what God meant. Uh, but, of course, they are the extreme form of the program of God destroying all evil, and it includes evil in me first, 
And then once I've dealt with evil in myself, then I am fit to also deal with societal evil, fam familial evil, uh, civil evil, but first at my own level. And so uh, it, it has to be there. It, it, in other words, it does not show God of being purized than to behold evil, which is an important point in Scripture. But uh, the fact that they exist are indicative that these are vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, and consequently, uh, they are outside the pale of God's mercy. However, there will be thousands of generations that are promised for which his mercies will shine. So that's why I'm saying judgment of God is a very strange work, and that's con Warfield's contention that hell is a relatively small corner of the universe uh, of, of creation, uh, as opposed to what's going to happen. So as the transgression not so is the free gift, uh, Romans 5 talks about how much more abounds the grace compared to the effect of the, the fall, the effect of the, of the recovery from the fall through the resurrection of Christ and the atonement. The blood of Christ speaks better things than anything that happened before. And once it is shed upon all living men, we have a very different picture. So the mission is that because God's not willing that any man should perish, the uh, return of Christ is delayed until his return will not result in anyone perishing from it. That's actually the kind of literal meaning of Second Peter 3.9. Most people miss it because their eschatology puts blinders on them. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Again, it's, it is, that is his heart. Kirk asks, Curious to know how this teaching bears upon contemporary life here in America. It appears that we are living out the moral capital of the faithful who have preceded us. Yeah, that's what we call the, um, the constitutional autopilot, and we have spiritual capital that the Puritans laid, and then we uh, are floating along, but the airplane is not staying at elevation, it's continuing to sink and it's heading toward the mountain. And so it's up to us to rebuild the foundations. Psalm 11.3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? We rebuild new foundations. This is the mission of Isaiah 58.12. Um, and they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt be called the repairer, the breach, the restorer of the past to dwell, and thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. So new foundations are called for. Um, because our foundations are like the foundations that Haggai confronts in Haggai 1. The foundations of the temple were laid years ago, but they rotted due to weathering, and they're useless. And so God's house lays waste, and everyone else is dwelling in their sealed housings, and God then says, I'm going to put a hole in your purse. That's where we're at today. So yes, we are cruising on the moral capital of others, but uh, it only goes so far, and it doesn't protect us from attack and judgment. In fact, it compounds it. Greg asks, does the imperative to come out from among them suggest we should not engage and invest in the ungodly? Does not necessarily imply that. Um, remember he, the, that there's a thing in there regarding, uh, if you're talking about the Bab Babylon, there's also the sharing of the sins of uh, Babylon It's in uh, Revelation. That's a very, very different ballgame. Whereas uh, you can be in Babylon and become a ruler in Babylon like Daniel became and yet not partake. So here he is in Babylon but not of Babylon. So you can have that and yet he's dealing uh, with transactions with the ungodly. Can be done. Can be done with a Christian man of Christian character. We lack Christian character today. I'm going to keep coming back around to that. And, uh, and the... Uh, Sometimes responses to me will be indicative of the lack of Christian character. <laughs> so kind of a self-reinforcing argument. Leavening of the lump is a time-dependent process influenced by external factors, including the ambient cultural temperature. In a way, that's true, but each culture is going to be different. It might proceed faster, uh, like a wildfire. That's not a pleasant word in California this lately. Uh, in some cultures, look what happened with Nineveh. Uh, look what happened uh, with Samaria after Jesus spoke with the woman of the well in John 4. What no Jews were able to do in Samaria, this woman was able to convert almost the entire area of Samaria, <laughs> talking about poetry, uh, to Christ, to God, uh, just because of what happened. So it's an amazing thing that can be achieved. Uh, and, but in Jew, in Israel, God achieved very, very little. Okay. So it depends. It's gonna, but the process goes on because... Uh, no one can see where the Spirit goes. Jesus points this out in John 3. Uh, it goes where it listeth, and it goes at the speed at which it listeth. Uh, well, will there be a Cal Student Conference in the near future? I think uh, it's always a possibility. We always work out what we can. It looks like we are done for the day. Three minutes over, and I apologize for being lengthy. 
like I said, if you get your questions in uh, at ask.calcedon.edu, we will take those first and then take the live questions. Um, but if there are no questions that come in, there'll be nothing but live questions and sometimes dead air, in which case I'll get to pontificate on topics of my choice. You don't want to have that happen, so by all means, send questions or participate. We'll catch you all next week. Thank you for supporting Calcedon. We're here because you folks uh, care to have the Word of God, the whole counsel of God, applied, taught, and expanded across the globe. And not just in the English language or with a stretch of Facebook, but every way possible, even by foot if necessary. So thank you for your support. Talk to you all later. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbredi. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.